and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Now, before we start, let me remind you that if you like this podcast, we would love to have your support. So consider supporting us on Patreon at Shael Media. That's Shael Media at Patreon. So today we're going to be talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, we are starting a series of three episodes about the tribes um, of Israel. Today we're going to talk about how historically valid it is to talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. In the next episode, we'll talk about the role of religion in uniting the tribes of Israel. And in the third, we'll ask, where are the tribes of Israel today? So get ready to go on a long and wild ride along with 12 tribes. But before we start talking about tribes, we could probably know what we mean. The word tribes was used to translate the Hebrew word shevet many centuries ago. But since then, anthropology and sociology have defined it as a form of organization with no permanent hierarchy. But of course, that doesn't really fit our 12 tribes of Israel, which often had a clear hierarchy and roles for influential individuals. Therefore, they're actually closer to what we would define as a chiefdom, a system where rank is based on family and birth, personal accomplishments, but accomplishments also play a role, not just uh, birth. But though more structured than a tribe, chiefdoms do not have a fully-fledged administrative apparatus and legal system. Once these develop, we're talking about a kingdom or an empire rather than a chiefdom. So it's somewhere in between a tribe and a kingdom. And that's sort of a good way of looking at the 12 tribes as they're presented in the Bible. And perhaps the best way to look at chiefdoms is as a social structure that takes clan politics about as far as they go. They begin to take on sort of pre-state characteristic. Um, more often than not, if external factors don't destroy them, chiefdoms do have a way of, um, of becoming states, often through some uniting hero type. Think of someone like Mehmet the Great or Genghis Khan as the most powerful examples. According to um, the Bible, the one who really united the tribes of Israel into a powerful nation, is King David. Now, in our minds, the 12 tribes are clearly distinct, but they're still part of the same nation. And the story of the origin of the tribes can be found in the book of Genesis. Isn't that where it all starts? Jacob, the son of Isaac and Abraham, has 12 sons and one daughter from his two wives. Sure, his first wife was his niece, but we're not here to judge. We're just here to analyze. God promised him, quote, Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants, end quote. Now, when Jacob gets older, and I mean like dying older, he calls together his twelve sons and says, quote, Come together. I shall tell you what is to befall you in the days to come. He then doesn't mince words at all. He tells his eldest, Reuven, quote, When you mounted your father's bed, you brought disgrace. My couch he mounted, end quote. Wow, don't let that guy loose around your furniture. And about Simeon and Levi, he says, quote, Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their wrath so relentless, end quote. Meanwhile, Yisachal, for some reason, 
we don't really know why, became, quote, a toiling serf. So that's all pretty bad, right? But there's one favorite, a clear favorite, Judah. We're told, you, O Judah, your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the nape of your foes. Your father's sons shall bow low to you, end quote. And I'm sure that's exactly what happened and has nothing to do with the fact that the Tanakh was written by the scribes of Judah or anything like that. What he said to other sons was more neutral. Quote, Zebulun shall dwell by the seashore. He shall have a haven for ships, end quote. That sounds a little bit like a tongue twister. It was quite a speech that must have scarred many of them for life. I get strong succession vibes from it. We're also told that when he was done, quote, Jacob drew his feet into the bed, and breathing his last, he was gathered to his people, end quote. The author of the book of Genesis sums it up like this, quote, All these were the tribes of Israel, twelve in number, end quote. You may notice that there are tribes missing from this narrative. Ephraim, Benjamin, and Menashe are not accounted here. This is particularly puzzling because according to the earliest written parts of the Tanakh, like the Song of Deborah, for example, possibly the absolutely earliest script there, Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the highlands in the Judges period. Meanwhile, Judah is missing in the Songs of Deborah altogether. And we will get back to that point. But let's look at what the uh, Joseph story meant. According to the central biblical narrative, the people of Israel were heretofore divided into these 12 tribes and maintained that separate identity throughout the Exodus and the reconquest under Joshua. Therefore, when King David is anointed 400 years later, the book of Samuel tells us, quote, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your flesh and blood, end quote. Then when the first temple is inaugurated, the ceremony includes 12 goats that are sacrificed, quote, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, end quote. Fascinatingly, that is the last mention of the 12 tribes in the Bible. According to tradition, 10 of the tribes were exiled to Assyria, the calamity described in Kings 2, never to return. But the 12 tribes as a structure are not mentioned again in the Tanakh. Now. One thing that's fascinating about this story is it has no real equivalent in um, other cultures. A lot of what we see in the Bible um, has other similar stories that we find elsewhere. And we see that the Tanakh is um, part of a wider folklore tapestry of the Middle East and even beyond the Middle East. But that story doesn't really have an equivalent in other tribes. Most stories of tribal origin are folklore and unwritten. You see, tribal history is notably an oral phenomenon. One expert on this, uh, Andrew Shylock, described tribal history as, quote, not only textless, but avowedly anti-textual as well. It would seem that tribal history in its spoken form refuses to become historiography. It cannot be made textual and at the same time maintain its malleability, its capacity to include and, if need be, exclude with the word its deft ability, if need be, to disappear. End quote. Beautiful text here. And what the meaning of this is, is that tribal history, by definition, changes over time, is told and retold, and is not written down. But this story was written, and understanding how and why is crucial 
to unraveling the true meaning behind the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's a lot of what we'll be doing over these next two episodes. Of course, the 12 tribes are a massive topic and one of immense importance in Jewish and biblical history. And as always, there are different ways to look at it and to investigate these issues. The two main ones are the preservative and cultural invention approaches. The first one, the preservative, looks at the narrative of the 12 tribes as one that provides us with valuable historical insights. Though no serious scholar thinks that every word about the tribes is true, some believe that with care and attention, you can extract the historical reality from these stories and better understand early Israelite history. Meanwhile, the cultural invention approach assumes that little of the story of the 12 tribes is factually accurate, and that's not an important part of the story. Instead, what matters is how the authors of the Bible and later traditions use the concept of the ideas of the 12 tribes for their own social needs and political needs. In this podcast, I won't pick and choose between the two, because in my opinion, to understand the meaning and importance of these tribes, you have to do both. Try to understand what actually happened in the tribal era, and then also why it had so much resonance later on. Now, one thing we need to remember about the Tanakh, which becomes particularly important in this topic, is that it's basically the book of Judah, at least much of it. It has a lot of criticism um, from all for all the other tribes, um, while always allowing Judah to have the preeminent position. So take this quote in 1 Kings, for example. When all of Israel heard that Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam had returned, they sent messengers, summoned him to the assembly, and made him king over all of Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David, end quote. This phrasing is trying to tell us that only Judah is moral and upright, but it also admits that loyalty to David and the supremacy of Judah was a minority position during the split of Judah and Israel. We will, of course, address that split at length in later episodes. But what matters here is that the Tanakh gives us the view of the elites of Judah in the 6th to the 4th centuries BCE on the 12 tribes of Israel. That is likely several centuries after they were any recognizable tribal structures in Israel, so centuries after they had originated uh, this structure, after the division into two kingdoms, after the destruction of Israel in 722 BCE, and the destruction of Judah in 539. And the passing of the years likely wreaked havoc on those tribal affiliations. So when these texts were written, there probably was very little left these tribes, or they had completely shifted and become unrecognizable. And that is why there's a lot of differences between what we find archaeologically and what we find in early stories and what we find in the later books of the Tanakh. So we really need to consider when looking at the lists of tribes and their descriptions, we need to look at when they were compiled. Now, most of these are believed to have been compiled by the priestly source of the Tanakh, what some people call source P, a scribe or scribes who worked in the Persian exile during the 6th and 4th centuries BCE. This matters because of the motive. With no less than 26 lists of tribes and their origins, this is an issue the priestly source was very passionate and enthusiastic about, though not necessarily consistent about. Why? Why was this so important? It's easy to understand when we look at what was happening at that time. You see, 
This was a time of disunity and crisis for the Israelites. Although, to be honest, what period isn't? Certainly, this period has plenty of that. And therefore, the way the 12 tribes are treated in the Tanakh subsequently emphasizes a unity of Israel that transcends all of these critical events. The idea is to show a uniting force. The tribes show the unity. However, to quote Andrew Tobolowski, the position here is that, quote, the 12 tribes' model of Israelite identity is eternally relevant. No matter what happens in a vacuum, we might expect a split of kingdoms, the war between them or their conquests, exiles, and returns to have altered how the Judahites understood themselves concerning embracing an old Israel identity. But already in ancient Judah, the idea was that nothing could alter the eternal salience of all Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel, end quote. Therefore, we have to view this narrative in the context of when and where it was written. The elites of the people of Judah were in exile. However, many of the common folk had remained behind. Meanwhile, many of the people of Israel, kingdom of Israel, not Judah, had been exiled almost 200 years earlier. The 12 tribes attempted to make sense of a shared history of a people who no longer shared a present. As Tobolowski uh, put it, quote, by repeatedly centering the 12 tribes tradition, which they did not have to do, by placing the familiarity of the beating heart in a new Judahite body, the authors of these biblical narratives built a bridge across a gap between ancient Israel and another place and time. The origin story of the tribes is very unique to the Bible, but lists of tribes um, are similar to the lists of kings that we see in other cultures. So they're inspired by that, although they deal with tribes instead of kings. And so the most similar efforts we can find in other contemporary cultures are the two kings lists that were found in um, Assyria and Babylon. Uh, in the 11th, 12th centuries BCE. Archaeologists believe they reflect, in those cases, a long-standing tradition emanating from the Amorite tradition of using genealogy for social and political purposes. These lists tended to shift as society and politics shift. You have to keep in mind that in those days, ancestry proved the legitimacy of rulers and families. Therefore, a leader or priest would want to tie their existence to the most impressive person they could find. We see that in later periods, too. That's why it seems like half of America used to have ancestors in the Mayflin, and every Arab leader claims to be a descendant of Muhammad. Because of these interests, the lists are unreliable. Mario Liverani wrote, quote, A whole tribe may be added or subtracted, or a fake affiliation could be inserted, end quote. Why would that happen? to advance the interests of those who write it at the moment of writing. That could then become irrelevant a few years later. Indeed, scholars today agree that no organic folk memory is transferred from generation to generation intact. Certainly, there are stories told in families, but they change with time and location. Meanwhile, what gets set down in writing and preserved is almost always done so for some reason and to promote some interest. So again, when we look at the earliest texts in the Tanakh, like the Song of Deborah, Judah is not even mentioned. Some scholars believe as well that the inclusion of the tribe in other early texts, like Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33, is a later addition with a specific political interest. 
Daniel Fleming explained, this is likely a later addition because, quote, it remains to be proven that a people called Judah were incorporated into an association called Israel in any period, and it remains uncertain whether a kingdom ruled by the house of David was named Judah before the 8th century, end quote. In other words, the evidence of Judah's role mostly comes from later, and because the scribes were from Judah, they are without a doubt self-serving. Now, that's not to say there wasn't a house of David and there wasn't a kingdom of Judah in the early, um, earlier period. We're going to talk about that at length, and that's a matter of controversy. But the evidence of the existence of Judah, and more importantly, the evidence of the domination or importance of Judah, is quite scarce, in some cases non-existent. Now, scholars who have tried to periodize the Tanakh generally agree that the tribes in the early texts do not include Simeon, Levi, and Judah. None of them have a role to play in the early stories, or a clear geographical domain until later. You can see that very starkly in Judges. Therefore, several scholars believe that they are later additions to the people of Israel, and represent a southward expansion of Israelite influence. The tribes that were likely the core of the Israelites were not coincidentally from the northern Samaria area, which was the core of the kingdom of Israel. So it could be that Judah is one of uh, several later incorporated into it as the Israelites expanded their influence and not among the early people who made it up. If you look at the story of Jacob dividing Israel between his 12 sons, the favoritism towards Judah is striking. And I already quoted to you, you, O Judah, your brothers shall praise, etc. It's likely an attempt by Southern scribes to create a pan-Israel narrative, stretching back to a time when it didn't really exist, all while placing Judah, likely not one of the original tribes, at the top of the heap. And we know a bit about the interests of those who wrote that, their affiliation with Judah and the house of David, for example. And that certainly colors the text. However, we don't know as much as we would like about what the other tribes meant to these scribes and how it influenced their narratives. Some scholars have suggested that Judah is relatively unimportant in the Israelite community before the exile. Indeed, some have wondered if they were part of it at all. External sources from that period do not show any connection between Judah and Israel, even when it's clear that Judah did exist. For example, Professor Tammy Schneider looked at the Assyrian sources of the time and wrote, quote, They saw no special connection. The main question is why the Assyrians would not reveal a special connection between the two when the Bible does. It is difficult to believe that the Assyrians did not know about the relationship since they were engaged in the region for 130 years before the destruction of Israel, end quote. Judah, Levi, and Simeon are not on the list in Judges 5, which is probably the earliest. And we see clear evidence that Judah is considered part of the Israelite tradition in the 7th or 6th century BCE, but not before that. So the Tanakh can be seen as an attempt to buttress this claim. It's a vision of 12 tribes that is a tool in this attempt to prove the centrality and antiquity of Judah. But why was this so important after the exile? That's a question that we don't really know. Why was there so much motivation to do this? Perhaps to lay claim to the territory and legacy of the more powerful but now defunct kingdom of Israel. 
It could be less nefarious and a reflection of the influence of Israelite refugees in Judah and trying to incorporate them into these Judah-centric stories. These are all things that we'll try to deal with in later episodes, but it's worth having in the back of our minds now as we look at the tribes and their historical role. Okay, let's take a break from what the Bible says about the 12 tribes and look at what archaeology has to say about the period, the early period, where the 12 tribes ostensibly were formed and when they had the most influence on the politics of the Israelites. So we're talking about the period between the monarchy era um, and the Merneptah Stele, and that's about 200 years. During that time, we see nothing of Israel from any contemporary text, but we know that they existed because they were in the Merneptah Stele. We have evidence that they were around because they weren't eating pork. You can dig under Israelite villages and see that. So they were around. They did not disappear and mysteriously reappear. They existed over those years. The lack of textual reference likely reflects that Israel's people were largely nomadic at this time, although, as we know, they had some small towns. Um, there are some books that are quoted in the Tanakh from earlier periods but did not survive, most notably the Book of Yashal, which is mentioned twice in Joshua and Judges. It was quoted selectively, and what a shame that it has disappeared from the historical record. So, the only written evidence that we have is the Stele, and it refers to Israel in the context of a rebellion against the Egyptians. That means the Israelites had the political and military capability to cause the Egyptians problems. Therefore, Fleming argues that Israel was already, quote, a social group that acted politically, especially in the sense of a unified social body in the conduct of war and peace under coherent leadership. Therefore, he continues, early is best pursued as a polity, not an ethnicity. So the early Israelites are best looked at as a political entity, not as an ethnicity. Tribes with different um, origins banding together for political reasons. The ethnicity element probably developed over time as they shared uh, religion, as they shared traditions, and as they shared experiences. And we'll talk about what role religion played in that in the next episode. The Steely places Israel in the context of several political entities in Canaan that rebelled against the Egyptians, alongside Ashkelon, Gezer, and Yenoam. Um, this might have been a political union of nomadic groups that developed similar traditions and um, had an interest together in rebelling against Egypt. Now, when we look at the analysis of the Israelites in Judges, what we see is a political coalition of cities and tribes that maintained their own identity, but cooperated in order to fight external enemies, mostly the Philistines. That was something that was really badly needed due to these external threats. The Israelite nation appears to have cohered around the city of Shechem in its early stages, as we saw in the stories of Gideon and Abimelech. And um, the archaeology does confirm that Shechem was an important city, dating back to the Canaanites. So over time, as we already discussed, it shifted from a Canaanite identity to an Israelite identity. And there's an awareness of this development in later books of the Tanakh. 
For example, in 1 Kings 12, Yeroboam goes to Shechem to announce his kingship of Israel. So that's like the capital in this very early story. As the tribes cooperated, marriage unions between them became more common. Um, that's why early leaders like Abimelech and Gidon appealed to military leadership and kinship ties. The overarching uniting framework between the tribes was loose. That's why leaders had to persuade the people to follow them. Coercion was usually not an option since no one was that strong and cooperation was necessary to survive. So we see in these early stories, and we'll talk about this some more, how leaders gather the people and convince them to come along with them. Um, there was no bureaucratic mechanism to get them to go along any other way. So they had spots for large pan-Israelite assemblies. Um, for example, when Barak summoned the Zvulun and Naphtali tribes to Kiddush in Judges 4. Uh, however, Shiloh seems to have been used most commonly for this purpose. So the archaeological findings confirm some of these tribal uh, frameworks. Though it's hard to know what the names of the tribes involved were or how they worked. But with affiliations based on clans and blood relations, tribal alliances likely encompass more than one town, maybe a few towns, not too many, and much of the surrounding lands between them. As they integrated into one political unit, um, first sort of an Israelite people and later into kingdoms, their economies grew mutually dependent. The agricultural and pastoral elements outside the cities traded with urban centers for goods and services. They also paid taxes. In return, they could enjoy the protection of walled cities when threatened. That was an essential component of life in post-Egyptian-dominated Canaan, which was pretty chaotic. There was a lot more crime, bandits, and there were new people, sea people, who threatened those who were living in the highlands and in what today um, we call the West Bank. Today we may associate the cities with wealth and rural populations with poverty, or at least lesser means than their rural equivalents. But this was a completely different economy in those times, one where land and livestock were a great source of wealth. Therefore, many of the wealthiest lived outside cities, and some owned much land. So think of a patriarch like Abraham as a model of that. Both the rural and the urban participated in religious ceremonies to solidify ties between rural and urban communities. It appears that tribal leaders had reserved roles in these events. The earliest archaeological findings of the Israelites show that there seems to have been an association between a few villages, and one of them would serve as a capital, housing a chief responsible for all the towns in his sphere. These prospered most in the 12th and 11th centuries BCE. If you look at the archaeological digs, you can tell which city was the paramount one because they were fortified, while most of the others were not. So five cities have been identified as capitals of the 12th and 11th centuries BCE. Those are the sites of Tel Dotan, Tirza, Sakmim, Pirbat Selum, and an unnamed entity in the south. The fortified city at the heart of Sakmim appears to have been destroyed when there was a rebellion against the head chief there. This is just a theory, but he may have pushed the people too far in what was generally an egalitarian community. 
Once this happened, the area was still ruled by sub-chiefs. So each one of these societies had sub-chiefs under the main chief. But none of those sub-chiefs had the power to unite, so power fragmented. And Sakmim, which was a pretty significant center of power by the standards of that time, um, lost its ability to function independently. Meanwhile, the Khilbat Selum entity was smaller. So while Sakmim had five or six sub-chiefs, they only had two. But they had enough money to build walls and buildings. And that suggests that they could afford conscripted labor and had an organized, solid, though small, economy. This entity was destroyed later by an invasion. We can't tell if it was other Israelites or an external power like the Philistines. And especially since um, Judges shows us that the tribes sometimes destroyed each other, and we'll talk about that, um, it's hard to say which one it was. One of these village associations that lost its power um, or both of them, when they lost their power, were, were replaced by a larger kingdom centered on Tel El Ful. It's located near the current-day village of Bet Hanina in East Jerusalem. The chieftain there became quite powerful and was even able to import iron from Cyprus and pottery from the Philistines. This is where things start to intersect more clearly with the biblical sources. Most archaeologists agree this site is the biblical Gibeah the capital city used by King Saul. However, this kingdom was destroyed at the end of the 11th century BCE. So what happened here? Well, Judges has a pretty good explanation. In Judges 20, we hear about a war between the Israelites and the Benjamins, and it's all about the Benjamins, baby. We hear that, quote, all the leaders of the people and all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 fighting men on foot, end quote. What threat were they coming to deal with? Well, something terrible had happened. A Levite told the crowd, quote, My concubine and I came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. The citizens of Gibeah set out to harm me. They gathered around me around the house in the night. They meant to kill me, and they ravished my concubine until she died. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her in pieces, and sent them through every part of Israel's territory, for an outrageous act of depravity had been committed in Israel. Now all of you Israelites, produce a plan of action here and now. End quote. Well, that's certainly an unorthodox way to gain people's attention. But he certainly did get it. The men of Israel went to those of Benjamin, and said to them, quote, What is this evil thing that happened among you? Come. Hand over those scoundrels in Gibeah, so that we may put them to death and stamp out the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not yield to the demands of their fellow Israelites, end quote. So what happened then? The 400,000 fighting men prepared for war. They asked God who they should attack and how they should attack. And he told them that Judah should, of course. But things didn't go very well with 22,000 soldiers of Israel killed at the hands of those treacherous Benjaminites. Then on the second day, 18,000 soldiers fell. So the Israelites now decided to take a different approach. They provided burnt offerings and thus were guaranteed by God that they would obtain victory. They seem to have been divinely inspired to pursue the following stratagem. The Israelites attacked, as usual, and drew the enemy out of Gibeah. They withdrew until reaching Baal el Tamar, where a large contingent of soldiers was waiting in ambush for the Benjamins. 
the 10,000 best soldiers of the combined Israelite force now engaged the enemy in battle. Then another contingent marched on Gibeah and put all its residents to the sword. Soon the Benjaminite soldiers saw plumes of smoke coming from their homes. Quote, now the Israelites turned about and the men of Benjamin were thrown into panic, for they realized that disaster had overtaken them, end quote. Soon the enemy's army was destroyed, and we are told, quote, the men of Israel, meanwhile, turned back to the rest of the Benjaminites and put them to the sword, towns, people, cattle, everything that remained. Finally, they set fire to all the towns that were left. So ostensibly what we're looking at here is the story of the destruction of the Benjamin tribe by the people of Israel. That is very unlikely to have happened. However, this text has a good deal of at least possible theoretical, historical value. This chapter and several others in Judges portray Benjamin as a related but discreet political entity from Israel. You can see that it says, quote, all the men of Israel assembled as one, end quote, even though they were marching on Benjamin, which shows that they did not count as part of the entity. This opens up many questions on who the folks of the tribe of Benjamin were. There's been some speculation they're an Amuru tribe. Those are uh, nomadic people from Lebanon. And we discussed them already in episode 31. Brendan Benz believes they may have relocated from their homeland after the invasion of the Sea Peoples. That does make sense. They would have had plenty in common with the Israelites as outsiders from the Canaanite culture. However, since they came from elsewhere, maybe they were never entirely accepted. That's just a theory, though. This was not the only case where Israel had to use force in order to keep tribes in line. When gathering troops to fight Benjamin, the Israelites asked, quote, is there anyone from the tribes of Israel who did not go up to the Lord at Mitzpeh? End quote. It turned out that the folks from Jabesh Gilead did not. So what do you do? Quote, the assemblage dispatched 12,000 warriors instructing them as follows. Go and put the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead to the sword, women and children included. End quote. But while not sparing the children, they weren't without a heart altogether. They, quote, found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 maidens who had not known a man carnally, and they brought them back to the camp at Shiloh, end quote. How kind of them. Well, we can't know how historically accurate this story is. It seems to be the traditional Israelite explanation for what we discussed earlier from the archaeological findings, the destruction in Tel El Ful Jibiah. That's a historical event that actually happened and this is the biblical explanation for it. It may not be accurate, but it seems to refer to that event, connecting reality and the Tanakh. The city of Bethel may also have been destroyed at that time. There are also other worthwhile connections to explore between the archaeological record and what we see in the Tanakh about the 12 tribes. For example, in 1025 BCE, the village of Chirbet Radana was destroyed. The rise of Jibiah then followed it. The archaeological record makes that much clearer. But there are some parallels between this and the rise of Samuel. The book of Samuel even refers to the city as Jibiah of Saul. So, wh whoever the king that rose from Jibiah is, was the source for the story of Saul, and perhaps a genuine historical um, character called Saul. Maybe 
very similar to the one in the Tanakh. There's really, it's really hard to tell when we're lacking any confirmation from other sources. But while there may be some link to the biblical text, the place names emphasized in Judges and Samuel remain a real problem. They stress cities that rose to importance later. For example, Shiloh is often mentioned, but was very minor during this judge's period. Meanwhile, Dotan and Tirza, clearly important at the time, are not discussed. Interestingly, Dotan is mentioned in Genesis, but not in the period where it was most important. Meanwhile, Tirza was mentioned in Joshua, but not in Judges or Samuel. It's very hard to tell if this is um, an ideological problem, where these cities are being stressed for some reason that we're not aware of, or if the scribes who wrote the Tanakh were simply confused about the importance and role of different cities at different times hundreds of years later. Uh, both could make sense, or a combination of the two. So in conclusion, we find ourselves in a familiar and unsatisfying position. You see, there's some truth to the biblical narrative. There's no question the Israelites arose as a union of different tribes. The archaeological evidence confirms that. Those were mainly nomadic tribes, probably a combination of local and foreign ones, that united haphazardly to face shared threats, and then developed a certain similarity in culture and religion. And we'll talk more about that in the next episode. But there's also much of the narrative that seems unfounded. In addition, much of it seems designed to promote a specific agenda. One that we now understand was that of the House of Judah, and an attempt to construct a central role in Israelite history for that tribe that is probably not historically justified. And this is the most maddening part of the Bible. We can't dismiss it because of its social and religious importance, its astounding literary beauty, and the incredible detail that it offers. Yet it is also a highly self-interested document, promoting the agenda of specific priests of Judah, often after they had been exiled. We will look more at that tension as we examine the role of religion in uniting and dividing the 12 tribes of Israel in the next episode. And with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry email, or a nice one, or questions at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Until next time, consider subscribing to my Israel Explained channel on YouTube which talks about the current conflict, and supporting us on Patreon. That's at Shayomida Media Patreon. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and see you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time.